Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman. And I'm Dr. Dante Ye. And we are your co-hosts for this series. Today, we are honored to be taking an in-depth look in the current article, Mass Shootings in America, Consensus Recommendations for Healthcare Response, with the lead author, Dr. Craig Goolsby, Professor and Vice Chair of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, and Science Director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. Craig, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I have to say, as trauma surgeons, Dante and I were particularly intrigued by your article, especially in light of the increase in mass shootings. You know, if you use the gun violence archives definition of having four or more people injured or killed in one episode, you know, we're over 300 of these incidents now in the year. So this article is really timely. And I really kind of want to step back for a second and say, how did this idea come up? You know, I think a lot of us, when you get involved in these kind of familiar with surveys or after action debriefs and that sort of thing, but really this idea to kind of start with the survey, but then go towards this virtual consensus workshop. How did this idea come about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering, you know, when we, so I work at the science director for the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. And so we, you know, look at all different types of uh, public health and disaster related issues. And my background personally, um, with a lot of experience in mass casualty and a military medicine background, uh, it, it just seemed like something that needed more of a kind of quantified or specific answer in terms of what we could do as healthcare professionals uh, in responding to these uh, terrible events. And so as we started to, you know, to kind of look into it, we really became surprised with what you just mentioned that, you know, you, you certainly hear about these events, Las Vegas shooting, Orlando, Highland Park, and they're horrible when you hear about them, but to, to know that they're happening on more than a daily basis in the United States. I mean, this is something that happens on average at least once a day, if not more, around our country. And so we, start, we started to think, how can we do something that's more than just an opinion or really try to like get the experiences of the people who've lived through these, you know, the clinicians who were pre-hospital and emergency physicians and surgeons, and really look at what what were their shared experiences? What lessons could we take to be able to share with others? And so we thought probably the effective way to do that was to do a kind of a Delphi technique consensus approach and try to really glean and find those common threads that others might benefit from. So tell us a little bit, how did you select which centers to reach out to? And can you describe to those of us who are unfamiliar with the Delphi process, can you just walk us through it? Yeah, so for the, the selection criteria, we um, we wanted to pick sort of, you know, more recent uh, shootings. So we looked at shootings that occurred since 2016. It was a bit of an arbitrary cutoff, but we just, that was about the last four or five years when we were planning the conference. And we picked uh, sites that had large mass shootings. So with 15 or more people killed and injured was our uh, kind of our, our lower threshold as, uh, as was mentioned, the gun violence archive includes a definition of four or more people, but we went for a little bigger 
uh, shooting, thinking that we may get some uh, some more unique lessons out of those larger uh, scale shootings. Uh, we had a federal planning uh, group that worked together. So the National Center were a, um, a federal center at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda. And we worked with partners at Department of Transportation and Homeland Security and DOD and sort of throughout the, uh, the federal government and pulled together a group of folks to try to look at which of these shootings might be kind of geographically spread out, represent, you know, different parts of the country, different populations, and might be interesting, um, you know, for us to to try to pull these common themes from. It, it ultimately was a convenient sample. We didn't we didn't screen out or include every shooting that could be uh, be used. A lot of it was based on who we, you know, knew at various centers and thought we could get to participate. Ultimately, we had to get people to uh, to show up for the for the conference. So we had to use those connections a bit. And then in terms of the Delphi approach, um, it's really just um, an idea of sort of iteratively asking questions and sort of processing through answers to distill what becomes sort of common thoughts. So, you know, as an example, one of our uh, key takeaways from the study was around triage. And so we heard lots of different things around triage, you know, people talking about, well, here's what we did for triage, or you should have a surgeon in the emergency room, or triage needs to be iterative. And so all of these things seem to be kind of percolating. And then what we did is through, through kind of asking questions and taking votes in a serial manner, you get to a statement that everybody says, yeah, that's really, that's really the core of what we're talking about. And that's something that I can agree upon along with everyone else here at the meeting. And, and even though it wasn't all unanimous, it was, it was pretty close to unanimous. Um, and so we're able to get those, uh, those, uh, you know, what I would say would be major takeaways. It's great. And I think what you just touched on was actually one of really my big questions in reading this, which is you've got a pretty decent, not just geographic distribution, but also resource distribution. In other words, I think one of the things Dr. Ye and I have both worked at busy level one urban centers, it's what we know. But when we start talking and looking at these mass shootings, including Highland Park, a lot of these are not happening necessarily in downtown areas. And oftentimes because of that, patients are getting triaged to non-level one trauma centers. And I love that when you talk to these groups, you talk to people in Orlando, in Las Vegas, but then also you're talking to people in Sutherland Springs. So do you ever see a point where you're going to expand this to maybe get like, are there two different perspectives? Are there two different needs identified really when you're talking about a place that's fairly well used to being able to open an operating room at the middle of the night at the drop of a hat versus a place that may only have a few units of blood? Can you talk a little bit about that disparity or those differences and how we should address that moving forward? Yeah, I mean, they are real differences for sure. I mean, and that was uh, definitely something that came up and the participants talked about, particularly looking at a, at a place like Las Vegas, where there were so many patients. And so, of course, the trauma center received lots of patients, but then lots of other places received lots of patients too, places that never received trauma patients. And so even though it's, you know, Las Vegas, and you think of that as big city and urban, and they're, they're used to this kind of stuff, the, the places that were receiving patients weren't necessarily used to these types of patients coming in. And so I think probably the best way to think about it might be really being serious about sort of our regionalization of trauma. And so it's not just my hospital, my trauma center, but really trauma as 
I really like to think of trauma as a systemic disease, right? So if it's the leading cause of death for young people in our country, one of the top killers overall every year, you know, we think about cancer as a disease, we think about heart disease as a disease. I think we really should think about trauma the same way. And then if we think about that and think about how we can have sort of these regional approaches and then making sure that, you know, as the place that ideally we want the patients to go, we want them to go to your trauma centers, but if they can't get there or it's too far away or, or they just happen to show up somewhere else, how can as a region those places be supported? Are there ways that we can, you know, look at resource pooling or moving patients quickly? Uh, one I thought really interesting idea is that, you know, the patients are often self-transporting or they're transported by police. And so they don't know where to go. But a really interesting theme that came up was what if there was ways for the 911 dispatchers to be able to direct patients in the moment? So they call in, you know, and they say, I'm driving my buddy who was just shot at this horrible shooting and we're on our way to Hospital X. And the 911 dispatcher could say, no, 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 go to Hospital Y instead. Right. And we might be able to like push that triage process even forward or using apps or other things. You know, somebody goes into their Google Maps right after a shooting and they're like, where's the nearest hospital? We might be able to think of a way, can we route somebody to the right hospital that's either not overloaded or a trauma center preferentially from there. I think there's a, there are a lot of things that we could look at to help optimize that going forward. And I think, you know, one of the things linking to that is what's the role of the level ones then to start partnering with these area hospitals so that there's direct lines of communication. One of the other points was effective communication. So what do you think is the role of the level ones in this? Well, I mean, they're, they're obviously the linchpin. I mean, the, the key place, that's where we want to get, you know, the, the goal is to get everyone to you all, you know, that's where we want these, uh, we want them in the hands of the trauma surgeon, we want them at the highest level of care. And so, you know, there are different models out there, which I think is, is an interesting thing about a conference like this. I mean, you mentioned Sutherland Springs, so it's really remote in a lot of ways in terms of being in a more rural location, but it's plugged into the South Texas Regional Advisory Council, the STRAC. And so the support out of San Antonio at the University Hospital and at Brook Army Medical Center is really robust in terms of their communication and their transport of patients. And they even have walking blood banks and, and different sort of resource sharing that they're able to do there. And so I think probably as we look across the country, looking at where are these best models that maybe already exist and sort of piggybacking on those to be able to benefit others is probably, I think, the best way forward. And certainly the, the trauma centers are going to know if they're in a model like that, that may be able to help. And so being able to sort of share that either through, uh, you know, disseminating sort of scholarly activity or, or partnering, you know, through the American College of Surgeons to work on these things together. Um, I think there's probably a lot of options for that. Great. Thank you. I have the paper in front of me, and I was hoping that we could go over, just list out the eight statements that achieved consensus. Now, we have three subgroups, right? So there were three um, distinct disciplines that participated in this study. First, we have the pre-hospital personnel. We have the emergency medicine physicians, and then we have the trauma surgeons. And um, if I'm reading this correctly, they had breakout sessions. They, they met independently. They kind of worked along on their own, and then they all came together at the end, and then all of the groups agreed upon these eight statements. Do you, do you mind for our listeners? Do you mind if we just read them out? Sure. So the eight uh, common recommendations are that uh, mass shooting incident drills and exercises should be conducted regularly and must include uh, all, all potential participants from support staff to senior leadership. MSI drills and exercises should be as realistic as possible and include all aspects of care delivery. So that fell under our prior training, exercise, and readiness category. The next statement is for community preparation of bystanders, civilian, and law enforcement. 
And the recommendation is that lay people should receive prior education or immediate direction from web-based mapping programs about the appropriate hospitals to bring mass shooting incident patients for care. Next recommendation was related to triage and said that triage should be staged and iterative at the scene, emergency department, and to prioritize operative care. Next, we have communications. There must be effective communications from the scene, command center, and hospitals by all emergency response agencies. We have patient identification and tracking. A seamless system is needed to track patients accurately from the scene through definitive care and rehabilitation. And the next one is around uh, medical documentation and records. And we have alternative methods of rapid documentation and orders should be established and practiced in advance. The next is around family reunification, which said all local governments in collaboration with local hospitals should have a family reunification or information plan included in their disaster and mass shooting incident plans. And then finally, for grieving and after action mental health, we have a statement that says organizations should have pre-existing mental health support systems, processes, and resources to assist staff affected by the MSI response. I really like that last one because I think that, um, you know, attending to the responders is, is sort of an afterthought and it, and it hasn't really been given that much attention. And so, so I really hope that, that this statement will translate into meaningful, uh, concrete action to address the toll taken on, on those who are responding to the, to the disaster. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I always feel like that as, you know, emergency physicians, surgeons, you know, EMS professionals, we all have a little of, I don't know if it's PTSD, but but something, you know, where you're seeing these horrible things happen to people on a routine basis. And so I think that poses challenges for all of us in different ways. But it was such a, it was so profoundly felt by the responders to these mass shootings that this was a really huge emotional and psychological challenge. And that the need to have a plan in place and be ready with rapid mental health, rapid, rapid and longitudinal mental health, really, uh, was uh, was was one of the really important themes that came up uh, over and over again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you you know look at the literature, at least in trauma surgeons, I can say it's forty percent will show symptoms or screen positive, depending upon the literature you look at, for PTSD. And I know that the rates are similar in emergency medicine and definitely in pre-hospital as well. Such a such an important thing. And I think what you highlighted is not just talking about it, but a plan in advance. <laughs> it's an action. It's not just words. And so I, I agree with Dante. That was, I, I love that you included that. One other point that I wanted to bring up that I think is hugely important and again can be done outside of these events and in preparation of these events was where you talk about the prior public education in terms of people see a hospital and they're like, there are doctors there, you know, they can help me. And I think that I know I'll say, even when I tell people, you know, if I'm a trauma surgeon, here I'm at the University of Louisville. We're the only level one in the in the city. It's been funny a couple of times. People are like, "Oh, you're a trauma surgeon. Which hospital do you work at?" It's like there's there's only one of us. Um, so again, I think that public knowledge, and that's not just here. That's everywhere. That was in Denver and Atlanta and Chicago, everywhere I've lived. That there's, I think, not a a great understanding about what a trauma surgeon does and what makes a trauma center, a trauma center and why you want to go there and how people can find out and know these words in advance so that when these things happen, it's not necessarily at that moment when the adrenaline's pumping, when emotions are high, that you're, they're trying to sort this out. 
So do you have some ideas as to how we can do this better? Do, do we need commercials? Do we need, you know, radio ads? What do we, what do we need, Craig? Yeah, you know, the, the how on this one is, is tricky. I think you've, you've nailed all the reasons why we need to do it. Um, and I think the conference certainly highlighted it in terms of, uh, you know, commercials or how we communicate this. I mean, it's something we wrestle with in the emergency department on a daily basis. I mean, if people have, a, you know, if you have a massive stroke, it'd be really nice to know which, uh, which hospital you should go to that would be best able to take care of your stroke. And same thing if you're having a STEMI and if you're having trauma, you want to really get to the right place. I mean, I can't think of the number of times I've had a patient who's come in, you know, recently post-op from some super complicated neurosurgical procedure and they show up at my hospital that doesn't have neurosurgical capability, you know, and it's like, well, what? I mean, I can only do so much with you here and we have to send you somewhere else. So, you know, this sort of maze of getting people to the right place at the right time is difficult. I'm, I'm kind of a big advocate for just in time education things. So I think the idea that we're going to like, really reach out to 300 million Americans and they're all going to be able to identify their trauma centers is even though we'd love to have that happen, it's probably going to be tricky. But if we had sort of support at the moment, so, you know, if you knew if we could have dispatch centers that could know when, you know, when an event is happening, when there's a shooting taking place and they immediately are flagged then to say, you know, people need to be directed uh, when they're transporting by their own vehicles and things to go to this certain site, or can there be like a flash message that comes out through something, you know, something on their phone where they're going to be able to see it. I mean, I think we probably have tech. I'm not a tech person, so I don't know, but I would imagine we have the technology available to sort of pulse people like this and be able to let them know this is happening in your area. This is the place you should go if you need help. And then here's your second best option or, you know, something like that. And then people don't have to learn it ahead of time. They just have it in real time and then they get to the right place. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, almost like an Amber Alert, right? When you get that or a tornado warning that comes to your phone, it knows where you are, which is a whole other discussion. But um, yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that's great. Yeah, I was I was just thinking the same thing. I get these uh, really loud, obnoxious um, uh, alerts on my phone. Um, and I think they're meant to be that so you, so you don't just immediately ignore them. But but yeah, that it seems like the infrastructure and the, the means are already in place. We just need to activate it for these events, which unfortunately are becoming increasingly more common. Do we have any final words, any other messages that you want to send out to the listeners? Yeah, I would just so I would just say two things that I thought were really quite interesting from the conference. So one was that, you know, almost all of the issues were really system related issues. There was very little about medical care. It wasn't like, oh, everybody's got to do surgical procedure X, you know, and that's going to be the life saving situation. It was really more like, how do we work as teams? How do we talk to each other? How do we be prepared and trained so these things can go really smoothly, which you know, I, I think we, we probably thought going into the conference that was likely the outcome, but it was really strong that that's what the messages were around. And, um, you know, not that the medical care, of course, is really important, but I mean, I think that these system issues and solving those are really key. And then I would also just give a, um, you know, kind of a highlight to the Stop the Bleed campaign, which I've been able to work heavily in since, you know, before its creation at the White House launch. And you know, and a lot of my interest in this area was seeing soldiers survive on the battlefield from injuries that I was 
pretty sure they wouldn't have survived from if I was working back home by these simple devices, you know, tourniquets, this life-saving procedure by their fellow um, soldiers. And it was really rewarding to hear in the conference respondents at these events talking about a number of patients that came in with tourniquets in place that they felt like made a difference in the outcome of the patients. And that was actually one of the takeaways as well, is that this battlefield lesson that we're bringing home to the public about bleeding control seems to be making a difference. And so I thought it was encouraging for all of us, you know, working in this space to continue that area of education for the public. Well, this was such a great discussion, Craig. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and joining us on the inaugural episode of The Operative Word. Well, it was my pleasure. I really appreciate you both talking with me and for highlighting the study. For all of our listeners, I, I strongly encourage you to read the upcoming published article by Dr. Craig Goolsby et al., entitled Mass Shootings in America, Consensus Recommendations for Healthcare Response. You have been listening to The Operative Word. Hope to see you back next time. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to The Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.